The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox this Wednesday morning. These are your headlines. Uh, U.S. equities are rallying as underperforming cyclical and energy stocks finally lead gains with big tech lagging. Futures pointing to another strong day as Moderna fuels vaccine hopes with the study showing its drug produces antibodies. Trading revenues surge for Wall Street's largest banks, but results are overshadowed by ballooning provisions. As JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says, the future path remains uncertain. We cannot forecast the future. We don't know. We're also very clear that, at least I think, you're going to have a much murkier economic environment going forward than you had in May and June. Chinese markets seeing red after President Trump signs an executive order to eliminate Hong Kong's special status as he ratchets up the rhetoric against Beijing. They also signed an executive order ending U.S. preferential treatment for Hong Kong. Hong Kong will now be treated the same as mainland China. No special privileges, no special economic treatment, and no export of sensitive technologies. And Britain dealing a blow to Beijing as the UK government bans the use of Huawei technology as part of its 5G rollout, with President Trump saying he's helped convince many countries to shun the Chinese tech firm. Yeah, really fascinating looking at the action from the US. Yes, good morning, by the way. I should be polite. Good morning to you all. I hope you're all very well. And good afternoon if you're in other parts of the world that don't enjoy AM this lovely hour. Right, let's have a look at the US markets. What really interesting, uh, picked up a real head of steam later on after the European close pretty much as well. Uh, NASDAQ, the laggard. And uh, I had a, a conversation with the assignments editor, as I do every morning, and she was like, well, are we going to put tech in? I was like, no, why not we? Why don't we leave tech for once? Because I think that the, the, the interesting parts of this market are, are not in tech for once. There you go. Leave it alone. Put aside your herd mentality for once. Put aside your Robin Hood investors. Let's have a look at other parts of the market. So the Dow actually outperformed up 2.1%. The S&P up 1.3%. The Nasdaq up 0.94 of 1%. Don't worry, though, if you have invested in the uh, Nasdaq. Year-to-date, you are up 17%. Whereas if you've invested in the S&P year-to-date, you're still down about 10% as well. So you're still sitting pretty if you're obsessed by technology. But of course, as I mentioned in the headlines, and I'll do this briefly because we're going to talk about banks later on. The banks was where the big flashy headlines were as well. And I don't need to go on too much about it. My headline said it all. Great trading revenues, real concern about loan loss provisions going forward. There was a wide disparity in performance between the likes of JP Morgan, which managed to scrape out a gain in session, and the likes of Wells Fargo. And we spoke to the CFO yesterday, Wilfred Frost. So we may play you some of that a little bit later on as well. Goldman Seal to report 2.5% higher, Morgan Stanley 0.6%. I'll move on because not often do I open my amazing set of statistics, which I get from our team at CNBC every single day, uh, and look at the, uh, I'm going over here, I didn't know that. Neither did the director, I can tell you. Uh, and uh, I look at the energy sector outperforming, but that's exactly what it did yesterday. Uh, having been the, the mightiest underperformer by a, a long stretch, look at this, year to Day. I don't know if I'm allowed to touch the wall. I did it again. Look. 
down 39%. I'll get some five guys from engineering will just jump on me. He touched the wall. No, that's okay. Uh, 39% lower year to date. But look at this, 3.6% higher in session, which was interesting because I didn't see any amazing action uh, on WTI Brent apart from rallying off its lows. Did you watch the technical in the European session yesterday? We got down to a 41 handle on Brent at one stage and we closed. And I watched this minutely. I should be doing other things with my family, but I'm obsessed by looking at these markets. Uh, and we, we got to a 43 handle on Brent late on in the European session yesterday. So there was a really big recovery. I don't know if that says anything technically. I'm sure uh, Andy Critchlow from S&P Global Platts will have a, a word with us later on about that. So two factors very quickly on energy. One stateside, the inventories, uh, much lower inventories and bigger stock draw than many people had expected. Uh, the second part, of course, we're all looking at what's going on with OPEC, OPEC Plus, the JMMC, which is the acronym which stands for the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee. So everyone's watching uh, amid the very prevalent, very real concern that the US isn't going to see the kind of recovery in the second half that many had hoped. And of course, that will have large ramifications for the demand side of the equation. Okay, all right, all right. This is the bit where you see the US futures and I go to the camera because I can't see the board. So here we are. We're up uh, 20 points on the S&P implied, uh, 254 on the Dow, uh, 9.5 uh, on the NASDAQ. And then I run back furiously so that I can uh, stand back at the wall and you didn't know I ran to the camera then, but I just told you. Anyway, this is an interesting story and I think it was a large part of what we saw later on uh, and what we saw and are seeing with those futures now. Moderna shares shot up as much as 16% in extended trading after the company said its early stage trial for COVID-19 vaccine resulted in, quote, robust immune response in all participating 45 patients. This is really early days, Juliana, as well. But I, I've been pouring over it ever since I saw your message last night. Do you want me to come in early? Do you want me to talk about it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's get you talking about it. Second day in a row, because we had BioNTech and Pfizer yesterday, or BioNTech or BioNTech, or we'll call it what we like. But today, Moderna, we can say that one. Why is this one interesting? Good morning to you. Nice and early for you. Good morning, Steve. I was surprised that you emailed back so late. It's amazing. You go to bed late and you wake up so early. But this was definitely something worth your attention. This is the hotly anticipated phase one study, the full data from Moderna. And it was published in a peer-reviewed journal, the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is a robust, reliable data. All 45 patients who were in the phase one trial of Moderna's vaccine showed a robust immune response. These were 45 people, healthy individuals between the ages of 18 and 55, and they produced neutralizing antibodies. And this is what scientists say uh, is very important in fighting the, in, in preventing uh, the disease and building immunity so that these people don't contract coronavirus. And the reason I say that this was so hotly anticipated is because you'll remember back Back in May or May 18th, Moderna pre released a press release giving a little bit of insight into this early data, but it wasn't a robust, complete data set. It was just uh, some data points, and they drew a lot of criticism because the shares rallied very strongly. So we were really awaiting this peer-reviewed data set, and now it has come through, and it has validated those early comments from the company. Um, and you mentioned BioNTech and Pfizer and the data we were talking about yesterday in the FDA fast track designation. Well, on July 1st, those companies released um, some early data from their trial, and they're using a very similar technology to what Moderna is using, these messenger mRNA vaccines. And the results that Moderna has seen are very similar to those being seen by Pfizer and BioNTech. So it provides an encouraging signal around this technology more broadly. Now, you said this was an early study that's important to remember 
remember, we are going to be getting more insight around Moderna. The company is going to start a phase three trial on July 27th. That's going to include 30,000 participants. So that's going to really give us the answer about how protective this vaccine is. And a couple more open questions, broadly speaking, not only about this vaccine, but around immunity and how well it actually can protect us against the virus and how long it lasts. And those are some pretty big open questions still. And then, of course, the fact that this study is still just 45 people. So a bigger question around what happens when we apply this vaccine and give it to a wider range. But the takeaway here, no doubt, this data from Moderna confirms uh, earlier encouraging signals and is certainly a positive for the vaccine and for the stock. Steve. Uh, excellent. It reminds me of my biology, Oliver. I think I only scraped that one. Uh, ribonucleic acid as well. Yeah, messenger RNA. We're all learning on the job here about these uh, uh, very interesting concepts uh, and, and parts of molecular structure. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well worth getting up early, I thought. Right, uh, Karen's up early as well. She's going to join us soon as well. Uh, right. Three of America's biggest banks have reported a combined $28 billion in second quarter provisions. JP Morgan set aside a record $10.5 billion in loan loss reserves, halving its quarterly profit, but the lenders still posted better than expected earnings and record trading revenues, thanks to strong investment banking performance. That helped offset weakness at its retail division. Citigroup also beat profit forecasts despite an uptick in reserves as fixed income trading surged. However, heavy provisioning weighed on Wells Fargo, which reported a worse than expected net loss. It's first since the GFC in 2008. The JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, warned of an uncertain outlook for the US economy, adding that the bank is preparing for the worst case scenario. We cannot forecast the future. We don't know. We're also very clear that, I, I know, at least I think, you're going to have a much murkier economic environment going forward than you had in May and June. Wells Fargo CFO John Shrewsbury told CNBC that the company is re-examining its structure as it prepares for a slow recovery. We've gone portfolio by portfolio and done bottoms-up work throughout the course of the quarter, and I think everybody's got a, a better line of sight on, on uh, at least the fact that there, will, there won't be a V-shaped recovery um, and that uh, in, in parts of the economy uh, that have opened up over the last few months, we've had some close back down, et cetera. That's all new and incremental news, and different, different banks will process that differently. They'll apply it to their different types of loans. The Dallas Federal Reserve President Robert Kaplan says U.S. banks are in a much better shape than they were in 2008. I think we all agree about that, don't we? OK, uh, adding that the Fed may be able to start easing some of the relief measures. The banks went into this in much better shape from a capital point of view because of bank regulation. And we've also eased some capital requirements to access to the discount window so the banks could play their role through this crisis. Um, I'm hopeful as we get through this pandemic, the Fed will be able to show uh, uh, some restraint. We'll let some of these programs ease, but they were necessary. And, and, and so what you're seeing in, in these bank results, part of it is a historic amount of uh, capital markets issuance. And I think that's helped companies get through this crisis. And Right, Octavio Morenzi joins us, CEO of Opimas, to discuss. Octavio, people call me a big head, but I knew that there were going to be a lot of loan loss provisions. I knew that things were uncertain going forward, and I knew trading revenue would be good. So did you, so did everyone else. But what were the subtleties that came out of this first round of numbers? Well, I mean, congratulations on forecasting that. Well done. I think you deserve a big pat on the back for that, uh, as do I. Um, what was in the subtlety of these numbers, I suppose, 
is I think the a surprise for me was the Wells Fargo actually came out with a loss, that their loan provisions were that high. That was a surprise for me. I think there was a big surprise in terms of how strong fixed income was trading across the board at all of these firms. Uh, and I think one area that caught me by surprise as well was that within Citibank, within Citigroup, the equities trading was not as strong as I would have expected. So you saw a big a big increase in terms of volumes on the markets, in terms of volatility, uh, and Citigroup's equities trading arm wasn't able to, to capitalize on that. And that caught me a bit by surprise. Other than that, I think these things are, are pretty much with, in line with what we expected. I mean, JP Morgan certainly did better than most people expected, but the, the general tendencies and directions of that was very much in line with what we are seeing unfold in the markets overall. I deserve no credit. I just watch CNBC and what my colleagues over there say about this stuff. So I deserve zilch credit. Wilfred Frost <laughs> and the others, they're the ones who get the credit. Now, look, in, in all seriousness, though, what have my viewers learnt in, in terms of putting on trades in this sector from those three? You, you mentioned a little bit about the weakness of the equity trading over at City and that. But, but I mean, what uh, decisions to take away can my viewers get from that? Well, I think what's what's really stood out in this is how much the, the Fed is driving the markets overall. So I think that is the entity to watch in terms of these stocks. So the Fed un unleashed an unprecedented wave of monetary loosening and, and just plowed money at, in, in by the trillion into the markets by buying up everything they could find almost, or certainly any bond that they, they could find. So that's, I think, what the, the, the real takeaway is that these markets are very, very dependent on the Fed and the profits generated in the investment banking groups and the trading arms of these banks is very much dependent on largest from the Fed. So I think we have to watch very, very carefully, even more carefully than we have in the past, is what is the Fed about to do? What is the European Central Bank to do? Because they are really dictating this market where it's going. And the profits generated this bank and the very strong investment banking results are only due to that and nothing else. Um, I, I did know, I mean, again, lots of interesting nuances here, but the JP Morgan loan book growing by 4%, but deposits up 25% as uh, companies borrowed money and hoarded cash. When do you think they're going to start spending that cash? And what are the ramifications for the banks? Well, the ramifications for the banks are that they're going to have a, a lot of excess reserves. They're going to build up reserves with the central bank. They're going to have deposits that they're not lending out again. So their loan to deposit ratios are falling down quite quickly. If you look at sort of the overall lending levels, most of them have cut back on certain types of loans, credit card loans. Commercial lending is down slightly compared to last quarter. But that was really due to a lot of corporates basically drawing down the lines of credit, sort of the emergency lines of credits before they were able to go to the capital markets again and issue bonds and issue stock even if they want because things have recovered there so well. The NIMS, so the amount of, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Carry on, sir. So no, I was just saying that so, so the amount of lending has come down slightly, certainly in credit cards and, and student loans and things like that are down. Uh, and the deposit pace is shooting up, so people are depositing more and more cash. So I think the, your typical American corporation right now and your American consumer are, are saving a lot more than they have in the past. Uh, and that's a, a normal response to this kind of uncertainty that we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, I heard Jamie Dimon say that he thinks the economy is going to be even murkier than in May and June. Well, I do hope he's wrong on that. I, I thought May and June were very, very murky months indeed. Um, and I hope we do get beyond that and things become a bit clearer. Uh, but yes, people are hoarding cash and, and that means the loan to deposit ratios are, are go, falling through the floor. Uh, yeah, and God forbid the Brits and the Americans should be like the Germans in terms of saving. It is quite extraordinary times. Octavio, I can't remember if you can talk about individual stocks or not, but is there anything in the pricing of the market that you think is wrong at the moment in terms of this sector? 
No, I, I think, well, the, if, if you look at uh, two stocks, Morgan Stanley and, and Goldman Sachs, who are coming out with earnings coming up quite shortly, I mean, they've done quite well. Morgan Stanley, uh, Goldman Sachs, I mean, in particular, has done really well. So I think we expect to see a big upside there in terms of the, the at least the financial performance. Now, the stock price, that's probably pretty much baked into that. So I can't say there's any real bargains, immediate or obvious bargains amongst these large bank stocks. I mean, they're so closely analyzed and so closely watched, it would be remarkable if that were the case. But I do think, if anything, there's certain potential for the upside on a stock like Goldman Sachs. Now, remember, Goldman Sachs last quarter did not exactly cover itself in glory. So they took a big loss on their own investment portfolio, and that dragged down the profits of the bank overall, basically half the profits. With the market having recovered, I would expect to see Goldman Sachs' private investments there, their own investment portfolios have done very, very well. So I think we'll see a very sharp snapback in that. And that has been the aspect of Goldman Sachs's uh, financials that is always the most difficult to analyze because it's very opaque. You don't know what they've invested in. You don't know what they're holding. But it can lead to billions up and down on either way each quarter. So I would expect that this quarter to do very, very well and snap back if they've invested wisely this, this past, uh, these past few months. So I think there's going to be an upside surprise there on Goldman Sachs coming up. Yeah, and it's very interesting. Our, our viewers will find this hard to believe the following fact, but the financial sector is in bear market territory. They look at the Nasdaq and see everything shiny in the US markets, but it's still down 24% from its 2nd of January peak. So this is a sector which is still in bear market territory. So again, similar question, is it going to get out of bear market territory anytime soon? I think what we're going to see eventually is is these loan provisions that have been set aside unwound and unwound back. And I think you and I have spoken about this before, that a lot of these loan provisions that these banks have put on their books now, I think are overly pessimistic. And the reason for that is that we have not seen a market environment like this. And a lot of the loan loss models that they have are driven by unemployment rates. Now, unemployment rates in the US are not really comparable now with what they were in the past. And the simple reason for that is that the eligibility requirements have been lowered enormously. The extent of the benefits have been increased massively. So it's not like in the past where Americans, if you got un unemployed and were on the dole, you got $200 a month and you could barely feed yourself. The unemployment benefits have become much more generous there. Um, and eligibility much, much lower. So it means that, first of all, for a similar state of the economy, we now see a much higher unemployment rate. So these numbers aren't comparable, but also the people receiving unemployment benefits are much better off and less likely to default on their loans. And that is something that is very difficult to put into these models because the models are predicated on historical data. So I think they're probably, if anything, being overly pessimistic and we'll see a nice sharp uh, comeback as those loan provisions get unwound and they say we were overly pessimistic, we set too much money aside and now it's going to drive into the profit line. Good for them, because I'm afraid it's complete opposite in Europe sometimes. But you and I have done that one as well, and we'll do that one again. Octavio, thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for being so awake at 6.18 in the morning. Octavio Morenzi, who is the CEO of Opimas. Let us move on. The US has reported more than 60,000 new cases. This is a very interesting end of this read. Wait for it. The US has reported more than 60,000 new cases of coronavirus for a fifth time in a week. Texas saw the biggest jump in infections as the state recorded a figure of more than 10,000. Florida and California also reported big jumps, but the numbers were lower than recent records. Now, this is the bit which is staggering, this next bit, okay? Listen to this. If you listen to one thing in this minute, all of this comes as NBC News tally revealed that almost one in five new cases, right? One in five new cases from around the world. This is NBC News, NBC News say One in five new cases, building up, it better be good, yeah? Almost one in five new cases from around the world came from just Florida, Texas, California. 
Anyone else amazed by that? I'm staggered by that. Three states. I know they're populous. I know they're big. I know they're important states. One in five new cases around the world coming from three states. Coming up on the show, US-China tensions ratchet up as President Trump signs a new Hong Kong law. We'll be back. Plus, oh, there's a brilliant podcast today. Apparently, I'm on it. Uh, more in the market buzz around a potential uh, coronavirus vaccine. And we'll talk about the banks in it as well. We just did, so it will be on it. Uh, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. So as I mentioned, um, these markets are rallying uh, and with the futures rallying as well in the US after the European markets went to bed. A tough day for the European markets yesterday. They did, actually, if you were long, they did really, really well. Because, uh, that's wrong, by the way. Um, we'll take that off, shall we? Yeah, that's rubbish. OK, the FTSE's called up uh, 1%, by the way. All right, let's move on. <laughs> let's hope the Asian boards are better. Are they any better? Are these ones right? These are live, so they can't be wrong. Let's have a look at them. I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to say any words. Here we go. All right. Nikkei's up 1.5%. The uh, Chinese market's uh, down 1.2%. And the Hang Seng down 0.2% But the ASX 200 over in Australia up 1.7%. Now, China has pledged retaliatory sanctions against the US after President Trump signed measures aimed at punishing Beijing for its Hong Kong national security law. A foreign ministry statement called the US law, quote, a piece of scrap paper. Wow and urged Washington to stop interfering in internal affairs. President Trump said the move was aimed at holding officials and companies responsible. Today I signed legislation and an executive order to hold China accountable for its oppressive actions against the people of Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which I signed this afternoon, passed unanimously through Congress. This law gives my administration powerful new tools to hold responsible the individuals and the entities involved in extinguishing Hong Kong's freedom. Sam, so many times, oh, by the way, Sam's with us. Good morning, Sam. So many times we talk about ratcheting up the pressure and what the ramifications are, but I just feel that the notch has gone up a couple of degrees in the last 48 hours. Perhaps you can fill us in, Sam. Good morning. Good morning to you. You're absolutely right. I mean, as you heard there, Trump uh, really was taking aim at China this morning. He said that he had now signed into law legislation that would see sanctions slapped on Chinese officials found to be in violation of Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy, including uh, banks that do business with them. So this is really making it official now. And of course, it comes after Beijing imposed that controversial national security law. Uh, we've already heard reports, of course, of Chinese uh, banks actually making contingency plans in preparation and into anticipation of this. Now, Trump also said that he had signed an executive order to end Hong Kong's special treatment uh, to hold China accountable for what he calls uh, its oppression of Hong Kong. He said that this means that Hong Kong will now be treated the same as mainland China. Now, Beijing has responded to this. China says it opposes uh, the latest moves by the US regarding Hong Kong and says that it will take the necessary measures to impose sanctions on US personnel and entities 
in response to this signing of the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. That is according to a statement uh, by China's foreign ministry. Uh, this wasn't really hugely surprising given this uh, Hong Kong Autonomy Act was backed unanimously by the House and the Senate. And that is perhaps why we have seen a pretty swift response coming uh, from China this morning. It said that the U.S. side uh, will never be able to stop the, Hong the national security law and is urging uh, it to stop interfering in China's internal affairs. It said that if the U.S. continues to have its own way, China will respond firmly. So it'll be very interesting to see exactly what these sanctions entail. We've also heard from Chinese uh, state media, which said the law is considered a piece of scrap paper by the Chinese government. We heard, have heard China's foreign ministry saying that before. It also quoted observers as saying Washington is shooting itself in the foot with this move. Some very strong language there. Steve, back to yeah, you. Yeah, there really is. Sam, excellent coverage as ever. Thank you very much indeed for that. Well, I have a, an amazing friend in the gallery. Her name is Leonie. She's like one of the big bosses. And, and over the years, I go back over the reads and, and she goes, no, there was nothing wrong with that read. She's already changed it by the time I look back over it. So when I look at the opening calls now, she's just like, no, no, they were fine. They were fine. They were great. Look, <laughs> so, uh, the only calls which may I thought I saw some red arrows on, but apparently not. They these are the green arrows moving ahead aggressively uh, on the European future. So it could be, could be a decent session if you're long, if you're short. Well, you prefer the other arrows, don't you? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.